That was some beautiful singing, folks. I think that one of the things I'm most grateful for at our church is, is the sincere worship. I'm thankful for Andrew and the team and the way they lead us, too. We can praise God for them and that. Um, but it's just beautiful to be able to sing and encourage one another. And even as Andrew mentioned, you know, here we are. We're, we, we said we're following Jesus, and we've got to remind one another of that. He also mentioned the time, 3 o'clock. I don't know how he makes it all the way to 3 before needing to be reminded, because uh, I thought, wow, that's a really long time. It's oh, it's an app. <laughs> okay, got it. Uh, that makes sense. Uh, also grateful for John uh, Klobuchar and the Kids Minute and his reference to, to Veterans Day. And, and this past Friday was that day that we commemorate as a, as a country. And I just want to say thank you uh, to the men and women who have served our country in this way. And we can praise God for that. Um, you know, the, the, the freedoms that we enjoy, even in this moment right now, are not enjoyed by most of our brothers and sisters around the world. Uh, John Shen referenced that last week as uh, we prayed for the persecuted church. And so the, the freedoms we have are not to be taken for granted. And, and 1 Timothy 2 even tells us that we're called to pray for our government leaders. And a specific part of that prayer request in 1 Timothy 2, interestingly enough, is um, that we would be able to lead a tranquil, quiet life in all godliness and dignity. And, and men and women who have served in the military, you have very much been a part of what God has done uh, to, to bless our country in that way. And in his, in his providence, he's placed us here at this time. And so, and so we are thankful for each of you. Um, I'd like to take a time just to pray, actually, right now, and to pray uh, specifically for those in our directory who are currently serving in the military. And so can we bow together and pray? Uh, Lord, we want to thank you for your grace. We want to thank you for uh, the way in which um, you really have blessed us, that we can gather here in this way in freedom. And certainly last week, we, we prayed for our brothers and sisters around the world who, who uh, th- they don't come to church simply because uh, of, of trivial reasons. They don't come at times, or actually, they still do gather, even, even when they're under duress, uh, under threat of imprisonment, torture, or even death. Uh, they gather uh, even as their pastors have been arrested uh, by government authorities. And, and so we lift them to you now, but we also want to give thanks to you for your grace. And we want to thank you for uh, the men and women who serve uh, in, our, in our country, uh, in the military. And we think of those especially who are um, serving now, or that they would be kept safe, that you would give them strength, that there would be a gospel impact uh, of their lives on others um, that, that, that the chaplaincy in, in every branch of the military would be gospel-centered and that others serving would come to know you. But in this time, Lord, we would, we would pray uh, for, for Darla Dietrich and Morgan Dietrich as they serve in the Navy. We pray for Jack Giddings as he serves in the Marine Corps, uh, for David Hurst, who serves in the Navy, and Ryan Koenig, who's serving in the Army, and Isai Lopez, who serves in the Navy, and Carissa Lopez, who also serves in the Navy. We pray for Josiah Luna, who's in the U.S. Army Reserves. Uh, we thank you for Stephanie Taylor, who is serving as well in the, in the Navy. Uh, we would pray also for Timothy Mason and for Ashley Walsh, uh, one in the U.S. Air Force and the other in the Air Force Reserves. Uh, but we lift them to you. We lift their families to you. We pray your grace on them. We pray for your encouragement that you would keep them, that their walk with you would be strengthened by you, that the gospel would go forward and that others would come to know you as a result of their time. 
And we thank you that we can take this time to even think about them and pray for them, to bring them before your throne. We, we look to you now in these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, well, there's been a lot of things happening, uh, as you might be aware, uh, because last Sunday evening we had a fantastic congregational meeting, and we talked through and voted on a major new initiative for our church family. And uh, as you know, we're excited to be a, a gospel church. We're committed to growing deeper, walking closer, and reaching farther. And in light of this, we see our church campus and facilities really as tools for, for the gospel ministry. Uh, every, every, every area of this campus isn't there for its own sake. It's there because it's facilitating an element of gospel ministry amongst us. And our desire is to reach all people from all backgrounds with the gospel. And yet, just imagine, put yourself in the place of someone who faces mobility challenges. Maybe a part of your daily life includes the use of a wheelchair or walker. Uh, the question would be, are we really prepared to welcome you here? We certainly invite you into this church family, but will you have access to everything that we do? And we prayed through this for a while as a church, and we realized the answer is actually no. Uh, Though the warmth of our people is welcoming, the layout of our facilities can be a barrier to some. And so we want to change that. And so last uh, Sunday night, as a church family, we we approved uh, the Access for All project And this is a $1.5 million construction project. And I know that number sounds daunting. We'll talk about that in a moment. But uh, it's going to be in addition to our existing nursery wing. So if you're looking at the overall campus, that's it, the red box. That's what we're talking about. The big building, that's what we're in now. So if I'm looking at those windows, it's right there. That's where the red box is. It goes from the existing building there this way. And it's going to include an elevator. It's going to include upgraded ADA-accessible restrooms. It's going to be, include a refreshed and expanded nursery. And so if you can just imagine you know, what that might, might look like. This is the, the layout we have as of right now for the upper floor right here. So as you were walking in uh, those nursery doors, you would be... Oh, wait, there's a pointer on here too, Eric, isn't there? Wow, that's right. I forgot. Wait a minute. Let's see what happens if I do this. No. This? No. Hmm, there's some button on here. Oh, wait, maybe this. Oh, and it's green. You guys, you don't, you don't want, want me to know that I've got this now. You realize that. If I see someone, looks, I, won't, I won't do that to you in front. Don't doze off. I, I got you. Now I won't do it. But if you're, if you're walking here and you're looking this way, uh, you could see something like this. Um. So that would be looking from the, those doorways in, looking this way down that new, into that new section. Um, the elevator would be right here. These are the bathrooms here. And then if you're uh, looking down from um, that very same spot, but across toward the, the nursery, this would be the refreshed nursery. Just imagine it looking something like that again. A very welcoming, open space for people to join us. Uh, this would be downstairs. If you were to go, go, go downstairs to those doors that look out into this empty area where there's a storage shed and dirt, you would see this. And again, the elevator would be right here and a stairwell here and then a patio out that way that we'd be looking to, to do at a later time. But um, all that to say, that, that those are some of the things that we're looking at. And so we're excited to bring this project forward. We're seeking God in it. My, the next question, of course, would be, you know, how are you going to pay for this thing? That's a good question, okay? Fair question. And so the, the, the plan at this point is that the, the project will be funded as follows. 450000 will come from cash on hand in our capital improvement fund. 
and then 900,000 will be raised over a three-year capital campaign. And then we're going to utilize up to $300,000 in debt if necessary. We're hoping it's not necessary. Uh, but then the next question would be, well, how, how can I be involved? What can you do? And so all of us together, we're asking the church family, let's prayerfully consider what our part could be in this effort. Because this is an opportunity for all of us to give in all kinds of ways. Certainly, uh, Paul Delancey, who, who's going to be uh, overseeing the entire program. And we're thankful for, for Paul. We're so thankful for him. Um, and you can talk to him about this because we're going to need sweat equity. So you can give sweat equity for sure on anything happening around here. If you're good with a jackhammer, great. If you're not good with a jackhammer, no problem. We'll help you become good with a jackhammer. Okay? <laughs> great. Can you do nails? Great. You can't do nails? No problem. We'll show you. Uh, we've got stuff to do. And, and we're also going to uh, need prayer throughout the entire thing. We've got to be praying. If we're not praying, there's no reason to start. If we're not seeking God together in prayer, we don't know what we're doing. So we need to be committed to praying. And then, of course, we're also going to need financial giving that's joyful uh, and that's, that's sacrificial. And so each of us, we really need to ask that question, how can I be a part of it? Now, um, the beauty is all of us in this room and, and those joining us online, for, you know, if you're not here today, but all of us here, we have different financial situations. And, and so God doesn't call us all to give the same amount. We're called to be faithful with what God's entrusted to us. We're stewards. And part of being stewards is, is we see all things as his because they are. He, everything belongs to him. We're called to be content with what we have. Uh, we're called to be generous with what he's given us. And we're also called to be wise. And so all of us will be prayerfully considering that. But, but it's helpful sometimes just to look at kind of a breakdown of what hypothetically we would need to make this project happen. And so, again, there's, there's a lot of different amounts here, right? So this is the number of givers we would need. So we need 50 people, essentially, to say I'll give $10 a week, which monthly would be that, which yearly would be $500, which for a three-year total would be $1,500. But this is, this is literally $10 a week. What does that mean? That means you're skipping two trips to Starbucks that week. That's all it is. Okay, you're right. One trip to Starbucks. I know. It's gotten... I know the drink you get. You go designer drink. I understand. So you're going to say one time a week, I am not doing that. I'm going to sacrifice for that. And, and, and as we work our way up, there's, there's other ways in which we can be faithful to give on a weekly basis, monthly, yearly, etc., as we work our way up. And, and certainly we are looking to the Lord to provide larger gifts as well. But, but the reality is all of us can take part in this. And we should be asking that question, what can I give up? What, what can I not do uh, for the sake of giving access uh, to all? And so the question is, would you, would you prayerfully consider the part that you would play in this effort. And, and thankfully, again, all of us have different financial circumstances. God knows what he's going to do with that and guiding us in that way. We're asking everyone to respond with, with a commitment by January 14th. And you're going, well, how do I do that? Well, there's a few ways. Uh, you're going to be getting a packet in the mail this week if we have your mailing address. If we don't and you want a packet, give us your mailing address and we'll get you a packet, okay? But in that packet, you'll find several different items, including a commitment card. And, and what we're asking folks to do is to take that card, pray, seek the Lord, seek how he would have you involved, and then go ahead and make note of that on the card, and then you can turn it into the box in the foyer, uh, and, uh, and that way we can tally, tally those up. Um, and some people say, well, wait a minute, what if, I, what if my financial circumstances change? You know, what if happens if I make a commitment and then I can't do it? We, we, God is the sovereign. You are not God. 
we're going to do, we're going to make this commitment before the Lord. He could change, the, if, if your circumstances change, you're not able to, we'll deal with it at the time. You know, it's possible that between now and over the next three years, you could be blessed more financially. And so you, you, you could give more as well. We, we don't know what's going to happen with that. And so we just want to encourage people to, to consider that before God. Uh, if you, you, maybe you're someone who likes digital more than paper. Believe me, I understand. So you can go to the website right now and click on the uh, Access for All banner. It'll take you right there. There's a digital commitment card. You can submit that thing if you'd like to. And um, there's also some paper commitment cards on the counter right now. So if you are leaving today and you're like, oh, I want to do something right now, you're welcome to do that too. Um, we're asking that f- we have the commitments in by the 14th of January. Please understand, we're not asking that all the gifts be given by January 14th. That came up at the meeting. It's like, that's a good qualifier. We are not saying that. It's the commitments by the 14th of January. And there's a reason for that. If for some reason we fall short of the 900,000 in commitments that we're going to need, uh, we're going to have to kind of go back and go, okay, we need to go before the Lord again. What would you have us do? How would you have us uh, course correct on this? So... Um, but we're, we're praying that that's not the case. We're praying that actually God will bring in more than $900,000 in those commitments over, the, over the, these next uh, several months. Um, now, for some of you, you're saying, hey, what if I want to give a gift right now? Well, I got good news for you. The Access for All Fund is open. And so you can place a check uh, in that same box in the foyer and write in there Access for All in the memo, and that's exactly where it will go. Uh, if you want to do it via the giving page, you can do that as well in the drop-down menu there. There's a, there's a line for that. If you prefer text giving, you can just use the term access as you designate in your text, and it'll, it'll, it'll go there as well. And um, now, if you are giving a gift now, thank you, because you are helping us bring down, you're whittling down that $900,000 need, um, and so we, we're grateful for your generosity in that. Those who are tallying the commitments have one request. If you're giving now before December 31, please don't include that amount in your three-year commitment form. Because they're like, we don't know how to make sure we don't double count. <laughs> you know? So they're like, ah. So they're trying to figure that out. So, so if you're giving a gift now, just don't include it in that. You are certainly helping us whittle down the 900000 uh, But they're trying to keep that um, clear for them. So um, these are exciting days. And we're looking forward to what the Lord's going to do uh, through us as we strive together uh, to b- bring access for all at a church, so, at our church. So... Uh, Let's, let's pray right now and just ask that God would bless this. Lord, we, we come to you. We thank you that this is your church. It's not ours. That you are the one who paid for her. Uh, she's your bride. We thank you that, that you share her with no one. And we want to be faithful. Uh, we want to honor you. We want to follow your direction. We thank you for the enthusiasm and joy that we sense even in seeking your face now and in, in, uh, in, in, in coming to you to, um, to seek what you would have us do. Uh, in these days. Uh, We pray, Lord, that by your grace you would provide over and above uh, what the needs are and that we would glorify you in everything that we do, Um, that it would be an act of worship, that that this project wouldn't just be for a building because it isn't. It's to reach more. And we pray that it would have an impact not only here but in our community, in our neighborhood, and with others, that we can invite and bring more in to understand you, to know you, to follow you, to love you, to join us in growing deeper, walking closer, and reaching farther. So we we look to you in this now, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are continuing on in in 1 Corinthians, and it's been a fantastic place to be in the scriptures. And I don't know about you, but one of my my favorite stories is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. 
you know, introduces to us four children who find their way into this wondrous land through the back of a wardrobe closet in an eccentric old man's house. And uh, the children are Peter, Edmund, Susan, and Lucy, and they enter into this magical world called, called Narnia with its rolling hills, towering mountains. There's these deep, rich forests that are populated by some incredible different animals, all of whom can speak. And uh, they find the land is covered with snow. We find the land is con- cursed with perpetual winter. And we're also introduced to a wicked queen. And she's a usurper to the throne. She's a witch that has a lot of powers. And she's the one who holds Narnia under this spell, a perpetual winter. And also, we're introduced to a lion. And he's a mysterious, wondrous beast who comes from beyond Narnia, from beyond time. He's spoken of in, in hushed, reverent terms. We find that his name is Aslan. And when one of the girls asks Mr. Beaver in his home, is he safe? Of course, the beaver responds, safe. Of course not. He's a lion. He's anything but safe but he's good. So throughout this story, the lion, Aslan, is a picture of Christ. The lion lays down his life for Narnia. He dies on a stone table. He rises from the dead, more glorious and majestic than ever. And then his magic and his risen state uh, starts to reverse the curse that's on Narnia. And uh, wherever he goes, wherever he leads his troops, wherever he walks into an area of a meadow or, or a place, right there, the curse is reversed. You know, a place that used to be cold and white and dead now has life and warmth and springtime and, and, and there's trees that begin to thaw and, and, and blooms begin to come up. Flowers break through the surface of the snow. And also, interestingly enough, in the middle of the story, the children receive gifts. And it's fascinating. When they receive these gifts, they're told to remember, hey, these gifts are tools they're not toys. And so Peter receives a sword with a red shield and a gold line emblazoned on it to defend himself in battle. And Susan, she gets a bow and arrow to be used in the time of greatest need. And she also is given a horn. And she's told whenever she blows that, she will receive help in times of danger. And then Lucy receives a small dagger and a crystal bottle of healing cordial. And a few drops of this little cordial will, will actually bring about healing of any injury. Now, Edmund wasn't there. He was in the clutches of the White Witch at the time. I can't get into that right now. Read the story, okay? But it's really good. He wasn't there. But could you imagine for a moment if in the middle of this story, Lucy started running around with this glass bottle with, with healing ointment in it and started trying to fight the enemy as if it were a sword? I mean, that'd be weird. Or what if Peter tried to use his sword to call for help? That'd be strange. Or what if Susan attempted to heal someone's head wound by gently laying the horn on top of it? I mean, that'd be absurd. That would be an absurd misuse of gifts. And we're warned in Scripture that it's possible to misunderstand and misuse the spiritual gifts that every Christian's received from God. And when this happened, we miss out on God's intended purpose for those gifts. And the church suffers because it misses out on the building up of the common good intended by God through those gifts. And that's exactly what was happening in the church in Corinth. For some reason, in the midst of all of their pride, they were elevating false criteria for true spirituality. They were saying, if you follow this leader, you're really spiritual. And Paul's going, that's just not true. It doesn't matter what the leader is. It matters what the leader, what's the leader building on. 
And they had several other things that they would say, that if you're really spiritual, this is going to be true of your life. And, and Paul's saying to each of those things, no, that's not the case. Um, and then, finally, when it comes to the spiritual gifts, apparently what they were saying was, for what we can gather from verse, chapters 12 through 14, is if you speak in tongues, then you're really spiritual. And so Paul is going to dismantle that understanding of, of, of tongues and of gifts. But he goes into this introductory treatment of spiritual gifts. And we've been here for a few weeks um, really trying to, to just lay out the groundwork as Paul does here at the opening of chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. And when we saw that, we learned several things. We first saw certainly that all believers, everyone who's come to Christ, receives at least one spiritual gift. And that's huge. That's an amazing thing to think about. An enablement by God to carry out his desire for you, his mission for you. Most people receive more than one. And then we also saw that as those who've received these spiritual gifts from God, we need to, three things, we need to learn to discern, we need to remember who the gifts are from, and we need to remember what the gifts are for. And so Paul has been showing us that, and, and we, we looked at that a couple weeks ago. But then we also decided, you know, a lot of the terms that Paul is using here, the Corinthian church already understood what they were, those different gift designations. But here in 21st century Bay Area, California, guess what? We don't. And so we've decided to stop, and we're kind of backing off and doing a panoramic view of what the, what the gifts are. And, and, and we want to survey the New Testament and find out what, what's happening with the gifts. And we've seen that there are several themes, that, that all the gifts are there from one God. They are with differing varieties, and they are for the common good. But essentially, what we've looked at, we've, we've placed them into four general categories. There's revelatory gifts, there are sign gifts, there are speaking gifts, and there are supporting gifts. And, and by the way, please know these categories, they're not perfect. Okay, God, God has a wonderful way of breaking all my charts, all right? <laughs> so we've had this in the past. I remember two years ago, we were talking about uh, the different ways in which God is at work amongst us to give us uh, empowerment and holiness. I made the chart, and I'm like, that doesn't work, and I had to put an arrow in. Well, the same thing will be true here. These categories, they're the best that you know, I can kind of do right now. Um, and this is a tier two issue as well. We talked about that before. There's a broad spectrum of believers within the family of God who would have differing views on this. So on, on one side of the spectrum, we would have the continuationist who would say that all the gifts right now are in play exactly as they always have been from the first century on. Then we have cessationists who would say that there are some gifts that have a specific purpose for a specific time and that the rest of the gifts are all absolutely at work right now amongst God's people. And so last week we, we began with looking at the apostle and, and what is the gift of apostleship. And, and again, I won't have time to totally review this. If you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to go and listen to last week's message. You can find that online. But essentially, this was, um, to be an apostle, you had to have three qualifications, right? You had to, one, uh, be someone who saw Jesus' earthly ministry. You were a witness of that. Also, secondly, you were a personal witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And lastly, you were appointed to be an apostle by Christ himself. And so when we, when we saw the apostles, we saw that they had great authority. They were Christ's representatives. Uh, they, would, they could speak uh, authoritatively. Uh, they would speak and, and give revelation directly from God. And they also gave sign gifts, miraculous gifts that would show that they were holders of that office. Uh, then secondly, we came to look at the prophets. And we saw that the gift of prophet was, again, sharing with the apostle this honor of receiving and sharing direct revelation from God. 
And, uh, and, and you know, we saw primarily from the book of Ephesians, for example, in chapter 3, and, and, and how this revelation was made known to the apostles and prophets, things that were not known previously, but that were made known then. And so the prophet's job was to build up the body of Christ by exhorting and comforting brothers and sisters in Christ by divine revelation given directly from God. Prophets were men and women. We have accounts of uh, earlier in the book where there were uh, women prophets who would stand up in the church and share that prophecy in some way or another. We also find that uh, Philip's daughters, I believe there were four, they were prophetesses. So uh, that, that's a, something that, that men and women both would share in that. We took a specific look at one prophet named Agabus to try to discern what does seem to be the, the flow of how prophecy worked. And, and what we concluded was, in light of the Old Testament descriptions of prophet and continuing on into the New Testament, uh, that a prophet would both foretell and foretell. In other words, the prophet would foretell what was going to happen. By that, the people knew, okay, this is a prophet of God because they are accurate in what they are saying. And then they would foretell, thus says the Lord. And there was uh, predictive accuracy that was infallible that was a part of the prophet's validation for ministry. And, uh, and so again, we covered that last week. We want to keep moving now into this next section of gifts, which would be the sign gifts. Um, we did state that, by the way, that those two gifts, uh, both the apostle and prophet, were specifically given to the early church for the reason that there, there, was, there was no uh, revelation in terms of the scriptures being written down at that time. Uh, there was direct revelation coming from God. The passage in Ephesians talked about how the foundation has been laid, Christ is the cornerstone, and the apostles and prophets form the rest of that foundation. So we kind of talked about the building and how the building works and the foundation is the first thing and then the rest of the building, which Paul goes on to say, you, Ephesian church, you are now being built up together upon that foundation. Um, so those were some of the things we described last week. So now we move on to the sign gifts and we would say the first one we're going to cover is healings. And, and this would be something when if someone had the gift of healing, they literally would give a physical cure by spiritual power in the moment, at that time. Um, and it looks like because the, the phrase is typically used in the plural, that there was various kinds of illnesses that this supernatural power would, would go against and would, would heal. Uh, people would recover from that. And, and it's uh, one of those things where God would bring about and demonstrate his truthful through the messenger, through this act of, of healing. Uh, we see it in the book of Acts especially. Uh, we see it primarily associated with the apostles as they were going about. We have def- different examples of it. One we would see, for example, uh, would be with Peter. And maybe you'll recall if you've been in the book of Acts recently in chapter 4, uh, there was that, that time when, uh, when, or Acts, Acts 3 into 4 actually, in both of those sections, where someone would be sick, there was a man who had been uh, unable to walk, and, and everyone knew it, and they healed him, and, uh, and all the people would run together and, and, and go, wait a minute, this, this cripple, he's been re- brought to wholeness. How is that possible? That's in chapter 3, verses 11 and following. And so what's happening with the gift? The gift is attracting attention. Uh, the, the, the gift of healing is identifying these People as God's spokesman for the truth. And so the purpose of the gift was to draw attention to that. Uh, we can see that also very clearly in, in, in chapter 4, verses 9 through 13. 
because the, the authorities didn't like what they were doing. <laughs> and so they arrested him. They didn't like this message, this Jesus they were preaching. And so what does Peter say? If we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, as to how this man's been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands before you in good health. You see what's happening? The healing isn't the main thing. Yes, the man was was crippled. And certainly to the guy, that's a huge deal. And to the people around him seeing that, I can't believe it. This guy's been here his whole life and here he is walking. But notice, what's Peter doing? He's drawing attention to the message. He's drawing attention to the fact that this is about Jesus. This is about the one who you crucified. This is about the one who God raised from the dead. And repeatedly, we would see that pattern throughout the New Testament as well. It's interesting because this sort of left Peter's opponents kind of dumbfounded. In two sections, we see one, and seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. (laughs) Yeah, what are you going to do? Okay. And then, even as they discussed among themselves... The leaders said, what shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. And so these, 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 miraculous, these miraculous healings verified that these messengers are from God, and what they're saying is true. Uh, the next gift we can move on to then would be miracles. And again, this is more, it's even broader. This is, this is sort of goes along with the phrase typically miracle signs and wonders. And it's the same word that's used uh, to attribute miracles to Jesus in the Gospels. And then the apostles and, and later on through Acts and the epistles. And so primarily, again, these miracle signs and wonders were associated uh, with the apostles. When Paul is defending his apostleship, you'll recall in, in 2 Corinthians 2.12, he says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. There's the phrase. And so Paul's saying, though Corinthian church, you're saying to me, hey, he's kind of an apostle. He's okay. Maybe he's not much of an apostle. And Paul's saying, oh, well, I got news for you. I gave you proof I was an apostle. How'd I do that? Miracle signs and wonders. And so a question we would want to ask too with that would be, if Paul's using that as, uh, as the demonstration of his apostleship, it seems logical then that, uh, that miracle signs and wonders were primarily restricted to the apostles. Otherwise, how would it be a proof? How would that be something that he could use to demonstrate that for them? Uh, but the purpose of the gifts is to provide the authentication of God's messenger. Why? Well, think about it. What happened? When this goes on, uh, it grabs the attention of the listeners, doesn't it? It provides the basis to trust the message. And not only that, but it also increases the spread of the gospel. Why? Because word travels. These guys raised that person from the dead. These guys healed someone who could not walk. These guys gave sight to someone who's blind, just like the Jesus did. How do we explain that? And word goes. Now, as those two things, both the gift of healing, miracles, and the gift of miracles, miracles, signs, and wonders, are primarily associated with the apostles, uh, we would also see this. I would also see this as being one of those gifts that was there in the early portion 
of uh, church, the church's founding for the purpose of authenticating the message. Um, because again, it's associated with the apostles and, and we've already seen that the apostles are something that, that were primarily intended for that time. However, let me make a major qualification. Do miracles still happen today? Yes! Absolutely. Without a question. Are there miraculous healings today? Yes! No question about it. I'm so grateful to say, in our church family here, we have, we have people who are here present with us that frankly, by medical terminology and understanding of things, they should not be here. Uh, there are children that, that God's rescued by miraculous healing. I can tell you more about it another time if you want, but absolutely, yes. Uh, we're, we're not saying that that age is over, that time is over, of course not. We're just talking about the gift where someone has a gift where they walk up to someone and go, you're healed, done, and moving on. We're saying that was for a specific time. But certainly God still heals. This is still the age of miracles. There's no question about it. It's just not something that's normative to everyday Christian experience today. Um, so we want, we want to be sure to, to note, note that. Um, let's move on to the next gift, which would be the gift of tongues. And as I mentioned before, this was something where the Corinthian church seemed to take that and kind of bring it around to this thing of this is everything. If you, if you, if you have this gift, you are super spiritual. And so we, we need to note several things. That we'll, be, we'll be talking about this as we make our way through chapters 12 through 14 a little more. But, but let's recognize, first of all, what happened at the outset with tongues? Well, it was the, the time of the founding of the church. It was the time at Pentecost. There they were gathered, and as they were speaking, we find that the, the apostles and those present that were preaching, notice they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Wow. Then when you look at the reaction of who's there, it's even more fascinating. You know why? You've got different people from all across the Roman Empire. You know how many languages were spoken? Tons. They're all gathered together. You don't only just have languages, you actually have dialects. So, so for us, for you know, example, in English, if you hear someone from the South, you kind of go, well, I can tell where you're from. Right? You know. By the way, I'm not mocking Southerners at all. I just, actually, I like it. It's a nice accent. I can't. You know, I, I don't speak it naturally, but the, it shows you where they're from. Some people say there's a California accent. Do you buy it? I don't buy it. I don't think that's true, but I have friends and family in the Midwest, and they're like, oh yeah, there's a California accent. I go, what are you talking about? So I don't know what they're talking about. Some think there is one. Uh, back in the day, in the 80s, there was a San Fernando Valley accent. <laughs> Maybe you remember the Valley Girl. Uh huh. I will not recite anything for you in this gathering of God's people, but nonetheless, um, not because it's massively inappropriate, it's just very annoying. <laughs> so I just don't want to. But what was happening here as, as the apostles were, were, were preaching and as people were sharing the gospel, very, very clearly, people were. Um, Speaking not only in other languages, but in the very dialect of the individuals who were gathered, which is an amazing thing to consider. And um, anyway, 
you know, so, some, of, some have speculated, well, maybe, maybe when people were there, it wasn't so much that the words coming out of the apostles' mouths were, in fact, their language. Maybe they were just hearing it in that language. But, but it's very clear, again, that the, the gift described here in Acts 2.4 is that they began to speak with other languages. So it's not described as a hearing gift. It's a speaking gift. And that pattern holds you know, throughout the New Testament. And what's amazing is what happened in Acts 2 continues to happen throughout the rest of the book of Acts. And so uh, when we look at, for example, Acts um, 11, 17, we find that Cornelius' household comes to faith. And there begins, again, this, this same uh, beautiful gift of speaking in tongues. And this is the way Peter describes it there. In Acts 2.11, Peter says that God gave Cornelius, quote, the same gift they received at Pentecost. So he's seeing it's the same thing. He's already saying, that's just the whole point. What happened then is happening now. Um, there's also another reason that we would see uh, the gift of tongues as being a known language. So someone supernaturally speaking a language they've never learned. And that would be that in 1 Corinthians 14, 22, we find that tongues, the purpose for tongues is as a sign to unbelievers. And we'll, again, we'll get there when we get into chapter 14. But... Um, the question would be this. If, if instead tongues are some kind of ecstatic speech, as some would claim today, or some sort of heavenly gibberish or, or whatever it would be, how is that exactly a sign from believers? Uh, it doesn't seem like that would be much of a sign. Whereas if they begin speaking in a language they've never learned, huh, okay, that's a sign. Very clearly a sign. So... Uh, we could, we could say more about this, but for the sake of time, I, I don't want to, uh, to go much farther. Um, when we come to uh, you know, asking when, when did this idea of, of not, not, um, tongues being something other than known human languages spoken without having learned them, when did it become sort of an ecstatic speech thing? If we trace it through historically, we find really the, the, the first time we have it on record is right around 1901. Uh, that's when that actually started. And, uh, and it proceeded from there. Now, there were other pagan religions in times of antiquity that would go into these sort of like frenzied um, kind of babbling sessions. I even think we probably see it uh, with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Uh, that, that, that could be the case. But um, it's important, important to note that. Now, does this gift happen, happen today? And again, I think we need to be very careful about what the uh, purpose of the gift is, the determination of the gift, and, and what it's for. And, um, and, and we'll go into this a little bit more in, uh, later on in, in this you know, 12 through 14 section we're in. But I will say, I do think it's possible that this gift can still, in fact, uh, be in play today in certain circumstances. And, and I believe it's, again, in line with the purpose for the gift which, we'll, again, we'll see later as we go through these chapters. But in places, on the mission field perhaps, in faraway places where the, the, the gospel's never been uh, shared before, where people have nothing in their own language of God's word, where literally this is like groundbreaking, church-planting new work, it seems like that purpose is still available. That purpose is still present according to the description that we have of the gift itself. And so I, th I think it is possible in some places. And, uh, and this isn't the reason I would hold this, but I will share with you a story. Uh, I think the scriptural data supports that idea, but I will share with you an account. Um, so I have a cousin. Her name's Jenny. And she, uh, 
She's one of the most clear-thinking, kind of like straightforward, doesn't exaggerate stuff kind of persons you've ever met in your life. I mean, she works with pension funds, okay? Like, come on. Like, that just tells you. <laughs> I'm kidding. If you work in finances, I'm joking. But obviously, she's very clear about details, and she's very clear about how things work. She was uh, on a missions trip in Mongolia. And as she was there, she was there with her pastor, and he was, you know, preaching, and the translator was translating, and, and this is probably maybe 15, 20 years ago this happened. And as he was preaching, all of a sudden, the translator stopped. And... He looks at the translator and he's like, what? And the translator goes, you were just speaking in Mongolian. Huh. And he just kept going. Uh, I've double-checked with my, my, my cousin to go, like, are you, you sure? That, and she's like, yeah, I was there. Now, now her pastor, he also is uh, very much a, just kind of like, does not exaggerate, is not into sensationalism. It never happened again. Never happened to him again. I don't know that it was the gift of tongues per se, but it seems like in that moment, at that time, for that reason, this is something that happened. And I go, huh, how does that work? Because at first I was going, I don't know, I don't know. But then if you look at the scriptural description of what tongues are for, it seems like in those contexts, in that, those kinds of situations, it's possible that the purpose given by the scriptures is still present. So, um, again, is it normative Christian experience? No. Is it the... Uh, a static speech, heavenly babble concept that we kind of have all over the place, sadly, within many of the extreme kind of corners of, of um, you know, the kind of Pentecostal movement in other places. No, I, I don't think it's that at all. Uh, let's be clear about what the gift really is. But, uh, but certainly, it's known languages, never learned, and it's a sign, a sign to those who have not yet come to faith in Christ. Uh, so um, the, next, the next gift would simply be the interpretation of tongues, uh, which, which, by the way, has to happen if tongues are going to be used in the corporate setting. And we'll see that a little bit later, too, as we go through this section. Um, if that's going to be used, if uh, the, the interpretation has to be made. Why? Because the point is edification. The point is building up the body. And if someone's just standing up saying, I have this, and they just start declaring, you know, they start speaking. If I, I just started speaking in Chinese, for example, right now. If I just started doing that, how would that help any of you? There's like two people in this room it would help, maybe. Because <laughs> they know Chinese. But other, other, the rest of you would just be kind of going, Shh. not helpful. So the whole point of edification is there. And that's why the interpretation of tongues was the, the companion gift to tongues. And it was essentially to be able to say, hey, this is to edify. Without the companion gift being present, don't do this. Don't, don't, uh, don't use that gift. Use self-control. And by the way, how hard would that be? Imagine you're sitting there and all of a sudden you're able to speak Hungarian. You know, and you find yourself with this urge to, to, to say it. And uh, is there someone with interpretation? No. You know? <laughs> Great. That'd be hard. A lot of self-control, a lot of humility to operate that way. Um, so, so the interpretation of tongues... Um, is, is a key element to using tongues at all in the, in the assembly. Um, we're running out of time. So on this side of, of the diagram that we're using, um, these are essentially the gifts that, that we would see as being primarily for the first century church, not normative for Christian experience today. As we cross to the next side, uh, we, we find ourselves 
now into the area of speaking gifts, and then we'll find ourselves also in the area of supporting gifts. And uh, I look forward to that. Um, it's important that we, that we see these things. But for some, it might be a struggle. Maybe, maybe it's a struggle for you that you're sitting there going, well, wait a minute, why, why would God talk about these gifts here? Why would he lay them out in the Bible? And why would they not be just normative for today? Why is that? And, and, and I can see that that would pose difficulty for some. So I, I, I want to just take a moment and, and go, well, let's look at how God's worked throughout redemption history, the history of redemption, and, and, and see what he's done. Because the reality is, uh, as the Bible unfolds that history, there are really three areas where the miraculous feats and, and miracles and signs happened. Uh, and it was for specific purposes each time. So, for example, there was a great, great surge of miracles that happened under the leadership of Moses and Aaron. Maybe you'll recall that from the Exodus account. And, and what was the purpose of that? Uh, well, let's face it. Um, Moses was commissioned to go and, and say, Yahweh has sent me. And he's going, Lord, why would the people believe me? <laughs> why would they even believe me? How are they going to know? And God's going, hey, I'm going to be with you. And then you go to Pharaoh and tell him, Thus says the Lord, well, how, why is Pharaoh going to believe me? He, I will be with you. And these signs, all of them, from the, the staff to the, the various plagues and everything else, was a demonstration of God's work. It, it, the purpose of the miracles was to, was to demonstrate to Pharaoh of God's presence and that he needed to let his people go. So then, that, that's one kind of punctuated area where we would see uh, those kinds of of miraculous happenings taking place. The second concentration came under the, the leadership of the prophets Elijah and Elisha. And maybe you'll recall that. Uh, and, and, and there was a time of huge apostasy in Israel. And so the, the miracles were given to again affirm the credentials that these are prophets of God as opposed to the prophets of Baal. And, and you remember that from, from Mount Carmel, right? You, you've got uh, the prophets of Baal. They're cutting themselves. They're harming themselves. They're doing all these things. And the prophet of God stands and says, here's a fire. Okay, we're going to make the, the offering there. Okay, put a moat around it. Okay, pour water on it. All right, pour water on it again. You know what? Let's douse it a third time. Pour water on it again. Calls on Yahweh. Fire comes from heaven and consumes it. Woof. I mean, the, the, the Hebrew there is literally the fire came down and lapped up the water. What's he doing? He's showing, I'm a prophet of God. They're not. And then we find the third period of miraculous activity came through the ministry of Christ and his apostles. And that's the period that, that, that is the, the bringing of the Messiah, the good news, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And, and realize, when people were hearing this message, there had been 400 years of silence between Old Testament revelation and this. And what did God do? He provided these signs, these confirmations, these miracle signs and wonders in order to demonstrate the truthfulness of the message of the gospel and to allow it to spread throughout ancient Rome. The gift of tongues was one of those confirmatory gifts. Healings, miracles, other things did the same. And that was 
the way that God used those things to point to the message and the messenger. So we see this as a way God has worked throughout redemption history. And I think it's consistent to see it as well today. Um, but, uh, but as we kick off things next week, we're going to begin by looking at the gift of evangelism. That's exciting. The purpose of this is for all of us to be thinking and praying, Lord, how can I be more faithful with the gifts you've given me? And an evangelist is someone who has a really amazing ability to share the gospel with the men and women God's placed in their lives, with other people. And uh, it's a thrilling thing to see that. And I, I'm going to pray even now that, that God, as we go through the remainder of the 18 gifts, that all of us will be kind of looking at it going, Lord, maybe there's, I'm gifted in ways I'm not aware of that I can use. Lord, how can I be sure to utilize what you've given me for the common good, for the building up of the body? That God would be glorified in that. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would, again, grace us to see these things and understand them. Um, That we would honor you. We thank you that you're the one who gives spiritual gifts. We thank you that the Holy Spirit is sovereign in his bestowal of spiritual gifts. And we pray, Lord, that we would very much uh, align with you and as you've revealed your purposes for those things in your word. We're grateful that you've given us multiple gifts as as an artist would would paint a canvas with multiple colors. You, Lord, you yourself give each one the proportion and the strength and the, 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 the ability to carry out your plan and your calling on our lives. And so we pray we would follow you in this. And we're excited to see how we as a church can continue to grow in using the gifts you've given us for your glory, for the common good, for building up one another, and for the furthering of the gospel here and around the world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.